Welcome to Episode 62 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today, uh, once again, uh, uh, Jason Weinstein is boycotting uh, the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast. But uh, Michael Vadis uh, is here faithfully, uh, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. Uh, Michael, uh, uh, you have a candidate for Story of the Week? Yeah, it, it, uh, it's Google's uh, successful effort to get a federal court to just slam down the Mississippi Attorney General, who seemed to be on an anti-Google vendetta. Uh, and uh, Google got the court to issue a preliminary injunction against the Attorney General, basically telling him to stop trying to censor Google. Yeah, uh, I can talk about that more in a little bit. Uh, well, well, let's. Uh, why don't we jump into it now? And uh, well, let me first let me introduce uh, Dmitry Aperovich, uh, who's the co-founder, CTO of CrowdStrike, uh, um, a good friend, and the former vice president of threat research at McAfee. Uh, welcome, Dmitry. Thanks a lot, Stuart. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to step toe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Uh, um, so. Let's go back to uh, uh, Michael's story. Uh, uh, I thought that was uh, very interesting. It was basically the Mississippi AG wanted to enforce some subpoenas, and uh, the court said, not only are you not for- enforcing the subpoena, you have no case, right? Yeah, I mean, it started with the, with the AG trying to get Google to basically censor YouTube, its search functions, advertisements. Uh, because he was upset about all sorts of content that he says is illegal or inappropriate. It could be ads for prescription drugs, you know, from Canada, uh, pornography, uh, intellectual property violations. And um, when Google said, look, you know, this is third-party content, we're not obliged to remove that stuff, you know, and, and explain that they do remove a lot of stuff that they're not legally required to, but they do anyway. He was unsatisfied with their responses, so he issued a 79-page subpoena for all sorts of information about what they do to remove third-party content and things like that. And and Google at that point got fed up and went to a federal court and, and sought and obtained a temporary restraining order and a preliminary injunction saying that this that this subpoena and his efforts in general violated uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which provides immunity for uh, websites that publish third-party content and violates the First Amendment because the subpoena was retaliatory. retaliatory. Uh, it was a response to, to Google's own free speech uh, rights and a violation of the Fourth Amendment because it was overbroad and, and basically sought information that was not within the, the AG's authority. And, and the court agreed right down the line. I mean, this isn't, it's not a final decision on the merits, but the court said that Google was likely to succeed. Yeah, well, no, it, it was it was it was it was a butt kicking for sure, right? I, and isn't there some? I mean, look, staffing the attorneys general so that they'll uh, take sides that you, take the side you want them to take is a pretty um, common tactic. And and I assume that part of what was going on here is that uh, uh, there was a suspicion that. Uh, the Mississippi Attorney General was doing some other commercial entities bidding. That I'm not aware of. That that's interesting. You know, I, I read it as a straight um, effort to get a lot of publicity. This is what a lot of state AGs do. This one in particular, uh, he was trying to gin up a lot of activity by other state AGs. Uh, 
through the National Association of Attorneys General. And um, like you say, this was just a real butt kicking. Yeah. Google's got to be happy about it. All right. Well, um, the I, I think the the story of the week probably has to be the the DEA um, bulk collection program uh, in which they were basically collecting from up to a hundred countries uh, metadata on all calls in and out of the United States from that country, uh, uh, which uh, ought to sound kind of familiar because uh, that's what the 215 program did, except it also collected it inside the United States. Uh, uh, but the DEA ran it um, for a decade before uh, NSA started its program. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, Nick Bassiano has uh, uh, written in to say we ought to talk about this more because uh, he was skeptical of my suggestion in the press that this was probably a precursor to the uh, NSA program. But it seems to me it's kind of impossible uh, that, to believe that uh, – um, the Justice Department and through the Justice Department, NSA didn't know about the DEA program uh, and wasn't inspired by it in setting up the 215 program. Yeah, you know, I feel a little constrained in what I can say about this since, you know, just the fact that it's in USA Today doesn't mean that it's not all still classified or at least much of it. And uh, I have no idea what's still classified, but I, I think you're absolutely right. There's there's no way that NSA was unaware of this going on at, a, at another government agency. And according to the press, at least NSA was involved in assisting uh, DEA. At least I think that was in the in the report and and other elements of DOD. So um, I think people had to realize that this is so useful in narcotics investigations. It's got to be useful for counterterrorism as well. Well, and, you know, what I find astonishing is that the program ran for 10 years without any problem or scandal at a time when uh, uh, there was nothing like the uh, uh, civil liberties uh, concerns. Uh, well, sorry, when civil liberties concerns were being expressed and there was nothing like the counterterrorism justification for the program, and yet it just ran along, uh, wasn't classified, it was just uh, treated as sensitive data. Um, and now when we do it in order to keep people from killing us, uh, it's controversial when we were just you know, suppressing the drug trade, apparently it was uh, a perfectly reasonable thing for the U.S. to be doing. Yeah, you know, I think part of it is the way that it operated, uh, by which I mean that when they would get relevant information, they would just pass tips to field offices without revealing the source of the tips. You know, they'd say, take a look at this number and the person this number belongs to. Right. Without without explaining the provenance of of that information. And I think that succeeded in, in preventing it from ever being revealed in, in any prosecutions. And, you know, I, ironically, I think DEA is a lot better at not leaking than uh, white, white houses of, of both parties and, and in t- some intelligence agencies. Yeah, the, 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 DE, the DEA, the, I, I'm guessing the DEA knew enough not to trust their bosses with this information. Uh, this is, there's a lesson in this for the, the National Security Agency, too, I think. Uh, all right. Um, back to litigation. AT&T paid, what, $25 million for uh, a data breach fine? Yeah, this is the uh, the second big settlement announced by the Federal Communications Commission, which is all of a sudden um, stepping out smartly into the area of, of data privacy and, and cybersecurity. And this involves 
AT&T employees uh, in Mexico, Colombia, and the Philippines who were accessing customer uh, uh, proprietary network information and then giving it to their criminal counterparts who were using it uh, for various purposes, I think one of which was uh, to gain access to stolen or secondary market phones using the uh, the personal information of the AT&T customers. Um, so it's a pretty hefty hefty fine, and I think this is going to be something that we're going to see a lot more of, especially now that the FTC is going to treat carriers as uh, as um, internet uh, access providers as common carriers, and therefore outside uh, outside of FTC's jurisdiction. So the FCC is really going to be um, uh, forced to be much more active. And, and probably enthusiastic about bite, taking a bite out of the FTC's uh, uh, jurisdiction if they can, because uh, uh, the FTC has uh, taken a bite out of theirs in some other areas. Yeah, yeah, I think we'll see a lot more of this um, interagency rivalry. But this was not a this this was not a, a hacking breach. Then this was uh, uh, a decision to trust this information to third country nationals who then slipped it to their boyfriends or uh, uh, to criminals on the street, huh? Right. Yeah. Total insider uh, case. N- nothing involving hacking that I'm aware of. And I think the first uh, settlement that involved Terracom and Yortel America uh, also just involved. Um, uh, poor security measures that were taken to protect uh, customer information, you know, uh, putting it on servers that were uh, unprotected um, without any evidence, I think, of, of a hacker actually getting access to it. So uh, speaking of poor security, uh, um, the argument uh, uh, has uh, the key escrow is making a comeback, and uh, uh, this is uh, uh, this is I'm really fond of this issue because I was deeply involved in the first round of key escrow. Uh, 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 key escrow encryption is the idea that uh, uh, encryption should be strong, but the key should be held by somebody other than just the owner of the device. Uh, and uh, 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 Michael, you were probably around for the uh, the clipper chip and the crypto wars. Uh, and uh, Dimitri, well, at least as I've probably. told, yep. as I've told reporters, clipper chip was all yours. <laughs> so I was very much in the in the middle of. And I think you know that was the difference between Bush one and and Clinton one. That's true. That's uh, you, um, uh, although I, I, I actually kind of remember this uh, uh, when this issue was first put forward, when the clipper chip idea was first put forward, uh, uh, was put forward at the very end of uh, Bush forty one, and uh, I, I said it was. It was almost as though you had brought a box of spare parts covered with oil and dirt and grease and stuff and dropped it in the middle of the sit-room table. And you looked up from the box and everybody in the room was in the corner staring out, asking itself, asking themselves how this could end up on uh, creating a problem for them. Whereas... Six months later, you brought it into the Clinton administration. You dropped the same box and the same table. Everybody was up out of their chairs before you could uh, um, look up, reaching into the box, saying, I think this could fit with that. Everybody was so enthusiastic about making policy and playing with the, the policy opportunities. And 
utterly insouciant about the ways in which it could blow up. Uh, uh, and I think that reflects, you know, uh, the difference in experience. The, the new guys in the Clinton administration had just won uh, a campaign, and so they expected things to go well for them, uh, whereas the Bushies uh, had spent 12 months or 12 years uh, getting ready uh, and governing and having everything that they did blow up on them uh, was very interesting contrast between the two styles of the administrations. My guess is this issue is coming to the uh, 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 rump end of the uh, Obama administration is again everybody's worried about how bad it could be rather than what good opportunities they have. Well, the, the, the notion that, that there's even the remotest possibility of the government uh, putting out some sort of key escrow uh, concept that's going to be uh, viewed favorably on the Hill or by Silicon Valley is just its laughable. I don't know who thinks that this is even a, a, a potential. Yeah, it's, it was funny. It was a funny story. There was a Washington Post story about this. It seems to be coming out of an internal White House uh, interagency working group where people are asking the question. Um, you know, the president has said very ambivalent things about encryption. I really like it, but uh, we can't be in a position where we can't read terrorist mail. Uh, and so they're struggling to figure out what their position ought to be um, with Jim Comey and the FBI and, and the national security folks uh, saying, President's right, we can't let uh, encryption become so widespread that terrorists defeat all of our efforts to uh, tap them. Um, and then all the techies and the uh, economic guys uh, saying, uh, are you kidding? Uh, just ask Mike Vadis, it'll never work. Uh, um, so I, I, I suspect there's a, a debate in which... Um, the FBI and NSA are saying, well, you want a technical solution? This is a technical solution. There are no other better technical solutions. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, and I don't mean to ridicule um, the need for a solution from law enforcement's perspective. Just I'm ridiculing the notion that anyone could think that this is a policy uh, argument that's going to end anywhere close to what law enforcement needs. Because, you know, I did live through this in the Clinton administration, and even the, the final, you know, weak tea proposal for a government policy that would just encourage the voluntary use of key escrow encryption. No mandates at all. Just trying to get people to realize that key escrow is actually a good thing for business reasons. You know, businesses might lose their key and not want to lose access to their uh, vital proprietary information. That was shot down by the forces against any sort of... Um, uh, restriction or anything that even smacked of, of potential restrictions down the road. And now the privacy concerns are so much uh, higher than they were in the mid-1990s. I just can't imagine that we're, we're going to get anywhere close to, to that point. You know, I yes and no. Uh, in the end, I think business mostly did escrow the keys or kept the keys and didn't give them to their employees. Uh, 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 my sense, and my sense then when I was uh, in charge of the debate, and my sense now is that just having the debate is a win for the national security and law enforcement guys. Uh, even if they lose politically, they are uh, keeping this question alive in a significant uh, way, and uh, 
you know, I, I think they assume that eventually encryption is going to do something that everybody hates, allow something that everybody hates, and that these ideas will come back into fashion. I don't know why. Uh, Dimitri probably was in high school when we had the uh, uh, the debate. Not uh, quite. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, how do you uh, do? You see this as a serious debate, especially at the at the company level. I, I don't. I think the crypto wars have been fought and lost. In the 90s, I don't see anything new in these arguments. Exact same arguments were being made in the yeah. 90s. And if anything, I think the uh, pro-privacy uh, arguments against it are much stronger today. You look at the freak vulnerability, for example, that was released just a few months ago. It was a direct result of the implementation of the export controls and encryption and the significant impact it had on the overall security. So I don't see this going anywhere. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's a that's a phony take on the on the story. Uh, as I've, I've said before, uh, uh, it, Companies could have solved this problem. The, the companies who made these products and built these browsers could have solved the problem. Nobody told them that they had to release this and certainly leave it in for as long as they did. It introduces it. further complexity. Anytime yes. you do that, you introduce security issues. That's true. I and uh, and the idea of splitting the key is really just a uh, uh, a tweak to the basic escrow idea. And that too is that's a rerun. Uh, I think Silvio Macaulay uh, patented the idea of splitting the key back in the nineties. That's right. Nothing new here at all. All right. Well, you know, this is Washington. (laughs) Nothing happens until it's not new. Okay, um, and I, 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 I have to say uh, I might have lost the crypto wars, but uh, on the question of how should we retaliate against North Korea, I think de facto I'm going to declare victory because some guy, uh, some South Korean, actually has adopted the Baker plan, which is that you should put all of the uh, uh, copies of the interview on a DVD on DVDs and fly balloons over Pyongyang and drop them there, and apparently he's been doing that. I, I just love that. Uh, Why uh, would we torture the North Korean population even more by having them watch the Seth Rogen movie? Yeah, you know, well, look, they're starved for any entertainment, so maybe there it's uh, it, it's bearable. Uh, okay, um, super cookies. Uh, uh, speaking of uh, uh, carriers getting investigated uh, over privacy breaches and uh, uh, the like, uh, Michael, uh, can you tell us what the super cookie investigation is going to amount to? Yeah, this is another uh, action by the FCC, um, and this is at the behest of uh, some senators who who asked it, uh, asked both it and the FTC to look into Verizon's use of so-called super cookies, which are um, unique identifier headers, uh, which serve basically the same purpose as a as a cookie. It, it tracks your activity on the web. Um, some differences uh, are that the uh, super cookies allow someone to be traced across multiple devices and are also apparently difficult to erase, uh, even when you think you might have gotten rid of it. Uh, in fact, you might not have, and tracking may still be possible. So the FCC is, is looking into that, um, and we'll see what, what comes of it. So uh, does Verizon put these just on their customers' uh, uh Machines, or is this something you can get just by visiting a particular uh, uh, site? Uh, I think it's just for customers, but okay. I'm not positive okay. if, if it can go beyond that. Okay. Uh, and um, last case, well, last case but one, uh, uh, this, this too is uh, a long uh, uh, part of my long history in this area. Kalia 
uh, and cost reimbursement and the costs that uh, um, are supposed to be re- uh, recouped by companies that do wiretaps. They're entitled to recoup costs, but the uh, FCC ruled that uh, if they have to redesign their network at uh, uh, um, the instance of the Communications Assistance to Law Enforcement Act, they're not entitled to more than really one uh, tranche of uh, reimbursement, which the government handed out in the 90s. Uh, uh, what I thought was interesting is um, the Justice Department went after Sprint with uh, hammer and tongs and the kitchen sink, accusing them of uh, uh, something close to fraud and uh, 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 you know false statements in seeking reimbursement for their costs for wiretaps because the Justice Department said you've included costs that should be included in Kalia. Uh, they settled. Uh, Michael, what lessons should we draw from this? Yeah, it, it must have been pretty egregious, uh, or there must be some other backstory because uh, communi- company, communications companies and the government both try really hard to get along. You know, the government needs the cooperation of, of the carriers in order to get information it needs. It doesn't want them dragging their feet, so it doesn't want to tick them off. And the carriers don't need this sort of publicity either. Uh, so for it to, to get to this point, you know, something bad must have must have happened. And uh, but as you say, this is an issue that we both worked on again 20 years ago, and it's just uh, it's deja vu all over again because um, uh, you know carriers are entitled to get reimbursement for implementing wiretap orders or pen registers or trap or trace devices, but they're not supposed to get reimbursement for upgrading their networks. And that's what the allegation is here, that, that Sprint somehow tucked in some of those upgrade costs into the charges it was passing on to the government for uh, doing wiretaps. And that's a no-no. Yeah, I, I have to say, I'm, I, there are surely some gray areas uh, here. Uh, uh, what, After all, Kalia requires you to have your network be wiretap ready and wiretaps uh, and carrying out wiretaps is what you're supposed to be reimbursed for and the question uh, you know deciding whether you were just getting wiretap ready or carrying out wiretaps strikes me as a um a, a place where there could be a lot of room for disagreement and to and to bring all of this heavy artillery to the case and then essentially it looks to me as though sprint's um uh, press release on this says we paid 15 of the 21 million dollars that the government was asking for because we didn't need the hassle litigating over it. Uh, um, suggests that uh, they just weren't willing to take the risk of uh, the very substantial penalties that would have come from the theories that the government was adopting. Yeah, not quite as good a settlement as uh, Exxon got from the governor of New Jersey in its environmental pollution case. Um, but still, I guess 15 is better than 21. Yes, yes. Uh, okay, and last but not least, for those of you who are worried that the uh, podcast would be caught up in the uh, uh, patent troll uh, effort uh, to uh, uh, extract uh, revenue and, and monopoly rents from all podcasters, uh, uh, Remy Lillian uh, has, uh, uh, I butchered uh, Remy's name, uh, suggested that we cover this, uh, uh, the podcast patent that uh, has been used by a patent troll to uh, try to extract 
uh, payments from everybody who has a podcast has been ruled invalid in an inter partes review uh, uh, that uh, uh, EFF helped to fund uh, and bring, uh, and they probably they probably raised about a hundred thousand uh, dollars. I've been through an inter partes review myself, uh, and believe me, if you hate a patent. Uh, uh, far and away, the best way to kill it, if it's if it's weak, is is inter partes review because uh, for certainly under a million and and probably some hundreds of thousands of dollars, you can uh, you can uh, litigate from soup to nuts, uh, which is far far faster and uh, more effective than waiting for the uh, uh, the patent case to be brought against you seeking uh, uh, royalties so uh, congratulations to EFF I never thought I'd say this on this podcast uh, but uh, uh, they were doing God's work I wish they'd do more of that and less uh, uh, trying to defeat US intelligence uh, uh, access to uh, national security targets abroad uh, let's turn, if we can, now to Dmitry Alperovich. Uh, I'm really uh, pleased because, Dmitry, I want to talk about uh, uh, the great canon, but uh, uh, Dmitry's firm has just released a, a very interesting little study that uh, was embargoed until we started this podcast. That's uh, right. uh, and so why don't we turn to that first? What uh, what did you guys do and uh, what's its significance? Well, certainly. So this is a story about a long campaign by one of the Chinese actors that we track. We call him Hurricane Panda. And two specific studies and two, two intrusions that they've uh, perpetrated against two companies in the technology space. And uh, for the first time ever, we've been able to actually deter the adversary. We've been able to actually get them to stop attacking those two companies in, in those two examples. In the first case, um, we were brought in after the company has already been compromised. We were able to remediate the network. And then for four months straight, we saw the adversary trying to come back week after week, trying different things to get back into that network to the point where in October of last year, they actually brought in a Windows kernel zero day, wow. which, which is pretty you know expensive tool for them to burn on a particular case. And in fact, they did end up burning it because we discovered it and reported to Microsoft and was released in a patch Tuesday. And then literally a few days after that patch Tuesday, we saw them stopping their attacks on that company completely. And then two months later, we got called into another company in the same space. So nice. So, yeah. so uh, just thinking about that, basically they kept escalating, kept escalating, kept escalating, say, we're going to get these sons of bitches yet. And they had to, I'm sure, I mean, at least if it's anything like uh, uh, the U.S. and uh, anything like most governments, uh, uh, they had to ask permission to use the zero day it's like uh, you say can i can i break out the uh, artillery now cuz uh, this uh, uh, you know exchanging pot shots isn't working uh, and they got permission and i'm sure that whoever's in charge of the zero days said okay now use it use it well you know don't screw this up and almost immediately they use it and it gets reported, it gets fixed, and they still don't get in, right? They still don't get in. And remember, this is not just about the zero day. It's about the four-month effort that they spent in time, money, burning other tradecraft that they had used. Right. At the end of the day, they seem to have made a decision, cost-benefit analysis. It's just not worth it. We're going to leave this target. 
And then in another case, another company compromised by the same attackers, Hurricane Panda, they bring us in, we install our endpoint uh, solution across their networks, remediate the network. And then for about a month, they try the same thing, trying to get back in those zero days this time. And then at the end of January, we saw something we've never seen before, which is they got on a box, they checked if our software is loaded in, they saw that it was, and they got off that system and, and stopped uh, uh, their attacks on the network, which, again, we've never seen before. And that gave us sort of proof positive that now two, two, two times in a row, we actually stopped them. Uh, we saw them stopping their attacks on, on two major companies. So they, but they, my assumption is that they then ramped up their attacks on you. Because uh, you know they're they're, they're not going to stop, but they're just going to try to find a way around your technology. Well, uh, the the technology, the beauty of it is that it's actually recording everything that's taking place on the system. So it's not just trying to detect you know malware. It's looking for any execution activity that's taking place, and it's reporting all to the cloud. So no matter no matter what you do, your tradecraft gets reported and uh, yeah. recorded, and uh, you're able to identify what they're trying to do versus the exact tool that they're using. So um, I can't help asking uh, for uh, little law firms: Is it possible just to get something, uh, a, a little piece of code we could put? on our machines that says it's running CrowdStrike stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like those those um, signs that say, uh, you know, protected by ADT security, and you wonder, did they did they buy the security or did they buy the sign? That's uh, right. We do work with a lot of law firms. Can't say whether Steptor is, is a client or yeah. not, but uh, we do protect a lot of law firms. Well, that's, uh, uh, that is, that's really interesting. Uh, let's think about it from their point of view. Um, obviously, that first attack uh, was really costly and failed uh, and um, embarrassed them, likely. I, first, how sophisticated would you say Hurricane Panda is in the, in the list of uh, from top gun to ordinary grunt? Well, out of the groups in China, they're one of the best. Okay. So they're not as good as the Russians, but, right. but uh, out of the Chinese groups, they're, they're at the top of the list. Okay. So this... Uh, there's some reason to think that they, they had other people trying too who failed and because my, my assumption is if you can get in using your uh, your grunts then you do it and uh, I, they only call on the most talented people for the targets they know ab initio or from experience are really uh, the uh, uh, the hardest to, to break That's into. Right. And we saw that progression happening over the, certainly with the first company over four months where the techniques got better and better to the point that ultimately they started using the zero day. So you never bring in the masters in on the first try when you simply don't need to. Okay. So, um, and did you, could, could you tell when they changed teams? Uh, we could tell that the tradecraft has improved because right. literally we see every command that they type. Right. So we're able to see, oh, they're using techniques that are pretty advanced and, and we typically don't see from the C teams. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, that is really interesting. Uh, and uh, uh, let me ask the, the hard question. Uh, are you sure they went away or did they just shift to a team who has tradecraft that uh, can defeat yours? We're quite sure because, again, we're recording everything, right? right. We're not just looking for malware. So we're, uh, we have teams of hunters as well, right. uh, in addition to the technology that's looking through all this data, trying to figure out what is the adversary doing. We're not seeing any activity. So uh, we're pretty confident. Now, we don't think that they just packed up and went home. You know, they're probably attacking other targets where we're not. Uh, but what we're seeing now is that you're getting uh, defense so good that um, 
the attacker has to make a cost-benefit analysis of, is this target worth it? Is it worth trying this hard? Is it worth putting that much effort and burning potentially very expensive resource to get in? And for some targets, they'll still say yes, right. it is, right? If you're trying to break into the White House, high enough target from a value perspective, you're going to unload everything in the kitchen sink on it. Right. But for other targets, maybe it's not. And we're, we're now getting, I think, to the point where you can start raising the bar high enough to protect uh, an, a large number of victims. That's very cool. That's so, Well, congratulations. Thank you. Because, uh, 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 you know, the defense has, has been losing for so long. It's kind of, uh, you wonder, when, when people say the defense might be winning, you say, can that really be? But I guess uh, if, if people are willing to uh, invest in the best technology and the most careful uh, um, uh, scrutiny of their systems, uh, there's at least a possibility. And what I like about it is that uh, it... Um, it really attributes the attack. I mean, I, I, I'm sure that every one of those guys occasionally mistyped things and in ways that tell you something about uh, what his native language is and what uh, um, uh, what software he's used to working with, et cetera, et cetera. It's actually a pretty funny story because we see them evolving uh, because they know now that the minute they get in, almost immediately they'll be shut out. So you see them mistyping and being in a rush because they know that yes, they just yes, have yes. a minute or two to actually do anything before they get completely locked out of the environment. So, so it's actually been pretty fascinating to watch. But you know, deterrence has been the holy grail of cyber, Absolutely. right? How do we deter adversaries? Michael Rogers, Admiral Rogers has talked about it extensively. So while, you know, two cases doesn't yet make a trend, we think that this is something that uh, could be um, quite effective going forward. And really the power of this method is the cloud, that you're aggregating all this data in the cloud, that you're able to record all these activities and hunt really for the objectives. We call them indicators of attack, mm-hmm. IOAs, of what the adversary is trying to do. So if you think about kind of a physical world example, bank robberies, right? One way to detect bank robberies is to give every teller pictures of known bad guys, known bank robbers in the area. That's sort of the known tools, indicators of compromise or IFC type of approach. The other way is to say, well, you don't care about who the guy is or uh, what he's wearing when he's walking through the door, but if, he, if he's walking through the door, getting to the vault and walking out with the money, that's something that they have to do to succeed, and that's what you're observing. Right, and, and and then you you know who they are, and and they, it, sure they can wear a mask, but uh, if somebody walks into your bank wearing a mask, you probably don't respond very well to it. That's uh, right. Uh, so yes, uh, well, that's really interesting, and I think uh, um, uh, very attractive. What I like about it is if you've got these guys in a position where they have to move fast, um, my experience is uh, that's when security breaks down when you when you have to move quickly you're focused on the mission you and all the security that slows you down you tend to jettison which means that they are at their most vulnerable if you want to give them a piece of malware to take home i uh, that's the best possible time if they're in a rush uh, yeah. now i uh, you'd probably uh, in the current climate you'd probably have to have the fbi at your side when you did that or maybe the intelligence community but that's not impossible either well, you know, in the military, they have this concept of an OODA loop, um, which is basically the idea that you go through a four-stage decision cycle, the observe, observation, orientation, deciding, and acting. And whoever gets through that cycle faster, you or the adversary is going to win. And uh, we're essentially trying to apply that same mechanism to, to the world of cybersecurity, where we're trying to be faster and more agile, have more visibility than the bad guys, and win. Well, I, it, I think it's great uh, to say we have um, – it's possible to uh, – have such good security that people think it's just not worth attacking. Uh, that, that's uh, or they occasionally try and and say, "Yep, it's still there." Um, that's not 
going to deter attacks on everybody else. We 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 need we need to uh, create a situation in which uh, uh, we just need to get everyone choice. to use CrowdStrike. There we go. Okay, that's well, get the price down. It's <laughs> <laughs> very reasonable. <laughs> okay, uh, so. One of the things I wanted to talk about because it's um, it's a sign of the enthusiasm for cyber weapons that the Chinese still have despite uh, recent uh, uh, difficulties that they launched this great cannon uh, attack and uh, Citizen Lab did a, as as they often do uh, a really good uh, study of this uh, with some technical sophistication. Uh, this was a DDoS attack on GitHub. GitHub is a great technical resource for people who want to trade uh, uh, code. Uh, and there are lots of people inside China who want to use GitHub and have to have access to it. And so GitHub said, well, while, they, while they're doing that, why don't we give them access to the New York Times as well I, so that they can actually see what uh, the coverage of their country is from an unbiased source. Uh, and, of course, the Chinese hated that. And launched a DDoS attack on GitHub, presumably designed to cost them boatloads of money and persuade them to stop offering the New York Times. Uh, that's not completely surprising, although that is a hostile act aimed at a U.S. entity. Uh, um, a, but uh, w- how they did it, I thought, was really interesting. They, if, if I understand this, they said, we're waiting for people to from outside the uh, China to log on uh, and ask for a resource at Baidu, the big search engine. Uh, uh, maybe it's an ad, maybe it's a search that they're doing, and we'll take two percent of those. And they're all at, they're all waiting to get a JavaScript, uh, and they give them. Uh, we'll give them a JavaScript that attacks the other that attacks GitHub. Uh, so two percent of these people will not get what they're looking for, or will get it second after they've gotten this uh, JavaScript. Uh, and there'll be an attack on GitHub that comes from every place but China. Um, is that your understanding about how it worked? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's it's really a remarkable thing that they've done uh, that they've done here. They essentially turned every user of Baidu, and and there's some indication that there are some other websites uh, that they've done this to as well. Into an attacker on on GitHub, yeah, um, and uh, it, it's really quite remarkable. And they use the same infrastructure that they have to filter out uh, traffic that's coming into China, the Great Firewall, to essentially do the same exact thing, only do it from the, the external perspective of any request coming into China. They'll now inject content. So they uh, back they, out. they said we're already looking at every every request going out of China. What the hell? We'll look at every request going into China, and we'll do something with that opportunity as well. Exactly. And and the way the Great Firewall works, and it's a little bit of a misconception because it's actually pretty advanced technology, is it doesn't just block websites. It actually injects traffic in so that it can terminate your connection if you're visiting New York right. Times dynamically, can analyze content. So they're basically using that exact same technology to turn into an intact tool. So I, I have to say, the, the U.S. reaction, the U.S. government reaction to this is pitiful. It's like, huh, uh, uh, well, I guess it stopped. You know, there's... the. Uh, this, there should be outrage here. This is almost certainly it's, it would be impossible to do this. Even Baidu would have trouble doing this. Uh, uh, it, it had to be done well, by the Chinese. There, there was actually really great analysis done by Citizens Labs and others where they've definitely proved that it's coming actually from the Great Firewall. They essentially trace routed right. the packets and determined where in the path the injections were taking place, and it was really where in the in the uh, China. 
uh, telecom uh, infrastructure where the Great Firewall sits. So uh, here's 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 my thought. Speaking of deterrence, it seems to me if Baidu did this, um, the FTC would be all over them. They say. Wait, customers come to your site and you feed them malware that attacks somebody else? That's a, that's a deceptive practice. That's an unfair practice. Uh, I mean, certainly if the, the lame security cases they've been making are valid, this would be a, a no-brainer. So shouldn't there be somebody in the U.S. government who says anytime somebody from the United States goes to a Chinese advertising site or search site wants to pick up for their website. Even 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 a Chinese advertiser would would pull you in and feed you JavaScript on the way back out. Uh, um, every one of those should there should be a block that says, "Are you sure you want to go there?" Because they might be feeding you malware. Well, there's know. no indication, I want to say, that Baidu had anything to do with it or was Baidu. even aware that it was taking place, right? right. So, of course, Baidu, Baidu is the company that argued that they have a First Amendment right not to, to tell us that nothing happened in June of 1989 in Tiananmen Square, and they won that case. So I'm, I'm not sure I uh, I feel they, they deserve lots of uh, uh, protection here. But, to, yes, I, there there is no reason to think that they did this, uh, I, and certainly not – it could if, if you punish them – it would just be Weibo uh, the next time or Tencent. Uh, uh, anybody who gets a lot of traffic from outside of China could be the source of this. Uh, but I don't, I don't feel particularly bad if every Chinese advertiser ends up uh, paying a penalty for the government's actions here. I mean, everybody's telling us that because of Snowden, U.S. companies are paying a price for uh, 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 our intelligence activities. And yet here's the most obvious government misuse of private uh, uh, traffic uh, that the Internet has ever, ever seen, and nobody's looking for a way to make China pay a price, at least as far well, as I Well, you know, uh, just a week ago, the Obama administration took the really unprecedented action, I think one of the most impactful actions anyone's ever done on cybersecurity, which is to announce that they will use economic sanctions, the power of the United States in the financial uh, world. And to more to power actually, to them. I, I, I think yeah, it's great. To punish uh, cyber threat actors. So we'll see. Uh, they, they've been very clear that the thresholds are very high, that it can't just be one company impacted that it has to impact financial and national security of the United States. But uh, certainly some of the attacks we're starting to see uh, may, may certainly rise to that level. Well, I, you know, my, my question is, where's the FTC on this? Investigate Baidu and let Baidu tell you what they know about this and, 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 and ask the question, shouldn't Baidu be telling overseas users, by the way, uh, there's this program, uh, it's not our doing, but uh, uh, if you come here, you could end up getting malware, right? Uh, and so if you're going to come here, you better have no script running uh, before you, uh, before you type in Baidu. Uh, I would have thought that that's not an inappropriate thing for the FTC to do, and substantially more social value in that than in three quarters of their uh, uh, settlements. Uh, okay, uh, uh, last question is: um, uh, There's another report out of from FireEye I wanted to ask you about, uh, in which they talk about a 10-year, probably Chinese government uh, campaign. I don't think they actually name the Chinese government; they just call it APG30, um, a, a, in which uh, they talk about uh, the Chinese having been doing uh, air gap jumping since 2005. Um, is that consistent with what you have seen in, uh, in, in Chinese attacks? 
Yeah, it is. I, I mean, there are certainly better groups out of China that have tremendous capabilities. Uh, you know, this is one of them. We've seen groups that have gone after CAC cards, uh, very, very sophisticated, right. the military uh, authentication systems. Um, so this is not unusual. Obviously, we've seen uh, uh, air, air gap jumping before with things like Stuxnet or even the Russian attacks uh, in 2008 So, so uh, with Agent BTC. But this is the earliest, that, that at least this is the earliest I've heard of people using this because uh, um, uh, Stuxnet was not was not running, if I remember, in 2005. It, it's not possible that uh, uh, we and the Russians got this technique from the Chinese. So that means that probably... Well, we, the technique was well known. You could go back you know, a decade looking at some security conference presentations. Right. This is not you know, uh, it, Nobel Prize winning rocket science. But um, you know, the fact that it's actually operational, it, it does take a lot of effort going from an idea to actually executing it. Right. Okay. Uh, and... Uh, and the other thing that I was struck by is, um, and this may just reflect my ignorance, they talked about how modular the uh, attack systems are, uh, and that was also a feature of the uh, Kaspersky report on the equation group that trying to uh, demonstrate just how modular some of the attack tools by what they call the equation group uh, uh, was. Uh, is that also standard uh, um, for reasonably sophisticated cyber attack? These days? Yeah, this is pretty typical. So again, you want to have the capability where you don't bring in your most advanced tools into the environment every single time. You want to make sure they don't get <laughs> okay. burned. So you have a module framework where you uh, put in a reconnaissance tool initially to figure out what's going on, what security tools are there, who's monitoring you, and then you slowly escalate from there. So we see that from Hurricane Panda, for example, all the time. Okay. All right. Uh, well, let me uh, uh, wrap this up. I always ask my guests if they've got anything coming out uh, or any speaking engagements that they want to uh, 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 let our listeners know about. And the, obviously, this report just came out. Uh, it probably is in the papers uh, uh, the same day that the podcast will come out tomorrow. Uh, it's actually in the papers now. But uh, uh, next week, of course, is the RSA conference. So I have something like five speaking engagements there. So uh, come visit uh, uh, visit me at RSA if you're there. Okay. I will be there. I've got one and uh, maybe two. Uh, uh, so uh, I'll be spending the week in San Francisco uh, if uh, if there are folks who want to see me. Uh, and... Uh, uh, as a reminder, the Steptoe Pod- Cyber Law Pos- Podcast is now open to feedback. Uh, you can send uh, your feedback to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, if you'd like to leave a message uh, uh, voice- in voicemail, it's 202-862-5785. This has been Episode 62 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week, we'll be joined by Alan Cohn, the former Assistant Secretary for Strategy, Planning, Analysis, and Risk in the the DHS Office of Policy, uh, and uh, uh, as of uh, uh, today, uh, he is uh, part of Steptoe and Johnson, so this is self-dealing of the worst sort, uh, but uh, he actually knows quite a bit and now is uh, uh, free to talk about it in ways he wasn't when he was inside the government. Uh, after him, uh, we'll have Mary DeRosa, former Deputy Counsel to the President for uh, the National Security uh, Council, and Bruce Schneier, cryptographer, computer security and privacy specialist uh, and all-around internet guru. Uh, uh, finally, um, we will be 
appearing live for people who actually want to see what we look like. Uh, that won't um, uh, be uh, something we often have to repeat. Uh, on May 7, uh, from 6 to 9.30, we're going to be holding a, uh, um, a beer summit where we have, or the triple entente with uh, two other podcasts uh, uh, from Lawfare, Rational Security, and the Lawfare podcast uh, will be at the Washington Firehouse on 6 1626 North Capitol Street. Uh, it's a fundraiser for Lawfare, so it'll cost 20 bucks to get in, uh, but we hope to see a lot of you there. And then on May 21, we'll be recording uh, this at the ISSA, uh, Information System Security Association, uh, the ISSA Nova chapter in McLean, Virginia, from 530 to 8. Uh, so uh, join us there or join us uh, here on the podcast as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.